Welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. So today I have an incredibly special guest, my friend, Allison Martinez. And I asked Allison to have a conversation with me about what it means to be an experiencer and what it means to be an, you know, somebody who might or might not identify as an empath as an experiencer. And uh, we're going to learn a lot more as we have this conversation. Allison, thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad you're here. And thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So, Allison, I started noticing that you were like burning up the Instagram reels and really starting to have these amazing, because I saw you on Instagram and just having these amazing conversations about what, you know, about being an experiencer. And so, although before I ask you the question of like, what is the definition of an experiencer? I actually, you know, was interested in just kind of, do you identify, you know, I mean, generally everybody who comes on is highly sensitive and empathic. And I was wondering, like, and I was asking you before we jumped on, if you identified as an, as an empath and you've said some really amusing things. So tell me about, you know, you being highly sensitive and empathic, like where did it, where did it all start? Well, that was the common refrain within my household as a child through adolescence and growing up was, well, why are you so sensitive? Mm -hmm. You're just so sensitive. And so for me, I probably still have some negative thoughts or aversions to identifying as a highly sensitive person or an empath, just because I had so much negative messaging growing up around it. And I think so much of my own adverse childhood experiences got internalized that way, that they weren't actually traumatic experiences. It was because I was so sensitive, mm -hmm. uh, which is not, not the case. Um, well, I am sensitive, but also there were legitimate traumas going on in my life. Right, right. Well, and I cannot count. I mean, it's almost like every single highly sensitive empathic or person empath that I've ever spoken to got the same litany of <laughs> information as a child. You're being too sensitive. You're overreacting. You're taking it too personally. Just let it go. Stop worrying about it. And, and it's interesting because the intersection between that and trauma and family systems trying to deny what was actually going on, like it's a very convoluted thing. And it seems like part of my mission is definitely to normalize what it means to be an empath, but also kind of like take back the word for ourselves and be like, this is a badge. This is something that we can stand in as an identity with pride and sovereignty, as opposed to wearing it as a label of brokenness or helplessness. Yeah, that's where I would like to go with that. But what, what I find that I struggle with, at least with those particular labels, and even the label of experiencer is I'm always wondering, how do I use this constructively? Mm -hmm. Because I would even say for myself, um, being an empath and a highly sensitive person, 
I would say has been maybe more of a limit to me growing up and through my initial adulthood. But now that I've worked through so many things, I'm like, okay, now that I have a good idea of how to temper this, about what a boundary is, about how to build my own self up and serve others energetically without like, not from an empty cup. Um, How do I use this beneficially for other people? And I have not figured that out yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a journey for sure. And I know for myself that every, like, it's like, I keep on peeling away layers of understanding the impact of being this way, but also understanding the gift of being this way, that it is definitely a process and definitely a journey. So right there with you. There are just, Allison, there are so many rich, rich places that I know we can go with this conversation. But before we dive even deeper in, experiencer, what does that word mean? What is it to be an experiencer? An experiencer is someone who has chronic experiences with what we are currently describing or what we are perceiving individually as paranormal. Mm -hmm. So an experiencer can be chronically experiencing anything from like poltergeist activity to ghosts, orbs, anything like that. But contemporarily, when you hear someone described as an experiencer or describing themselves as an experiencer, what they're referring to is what's known, at least in mental health spheres or in the mainstream, as someone who is managing chronic um, alien abduction syndrome. Yes, I was. I that was actually my understanding or my sort of perception of experiencer is that very frequently it was connected to experiencing extraterrestrials. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's also something that initially you will typically feel like, especially if you're if you're an experiencer. It tends to have started in childhood, Mm -hmm. like very, very young. And so growing up with that, not understanding it, you'll come into adolescence and adulthood feeling like you have no agency over this thing, that you are a victim of this, and it's not something that you can control. So Mm -hmm. it can be very, very, depending on the frequency and type of experience it can be very, very um, detrimental to life functioning. And in my case, especially to sleep, I still deal with the ramifications of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and one of the things that I recall hearing in numerous places is that it is not uncommon for, especially with extraterrestrial stuff and alien abduction, it's not uncommon for it to run in family systems. Yes, And so there's also, I'm imagining that, the sort of inherited helplessness and the legacies of this thing is happening to me. There is, I, I have no agency or choices. Yeah. Um, and it did. I actually did not know that. I did not know that it ran on a side of my family until I think it was maybe two and a half years ago when I had eliminated a lot of the initial, like, well, let's find out if this is, you know, maybe a more serious mental health issue. Let's get rid of all of the standard stuff first (laughs) before I delve into this kind of strange thing. But then when I started asking very pointed questions about aliens, the first family member that I asked on this particular side, after I said that said, 
oh, do you mean the ones who stand by your bed? Do they touch? <laughs> and they asked, they said that and they said, do they touch you? And I can't begin to describe to you the, like the confusion of feelings that happened in that moment, because it was sort of A, a relief, B, terrifying, C, deeply upsetting and angering because this, this is someone who was like a a family figure. They'd known me since birth and they knew how I was behaving, especially when it came to nighttime and going to sleep. And so at that moment, I, I was sort of like, if this has been happening to you and to all of you all this time, and you saw me like with these extreme behaviors as a child, why was it never talked about? Mm-hmm. Why was it, why was it a secret? And it's so um, uh, interesting is probably the wrong word, but it's harrowing how closely it parallels a standard, very extreme physical trauma. That's a secret that will be in the family. It, it's the exact same type of thing. Yes. Yes. Well, and yeah, if there was a legacy of physical abuse and sexual assault or something within a family system. Actually, interestingly, there was a movie that came out. I can't remember the name of it, but it starred Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a Mm -hmm. very young man, as an experiencer. And the sort of weird kind of intersection in that story, it basically was kind of like saying that he was an experience, you know, he was having these hallucinations and these memories and these experiences of being abducted when the truth was the way they made the movie out to be. It was his mind trying to make sense of incest. And so the trauma was actually a different kind of trauma. And, but as you're saying, it's sort of like this closed system of abuse where it's kind of just passed from one generation to another and nobody is talking about it. As you were speaking, I was thinking, I wonder if part of what was going on with the family was that they were so acclimated to it, like kind of like a frog in boiling water, that it didn't even occur to them that the way you were responding, like to say something to you, it was almost like, well, this is just how it is. Well, I don't know that that was quite the case. What I do know is that, and this is something that I notice happens with people who are experiencing something with you, Mm -hmm. maybe not experiencers. They're going through something with you that's very strange. There will be some type of phenomena that happens where something very odd will be going on and you'll be pointing directly to it saying, do you see that? And the person right next to you will just have this blanked out expression on their face. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, I don't see it. I don't, and they'll repeat it over and over and over again, like telling themselves nothing is there. And what I noticed is around like the closest family member who I can engage in a conversation with about this in a very detailed way, won't do that. But for the rest of the family, um, there's a particular messaging around it that unfortunately dovetails in with Christianity because mm-hmm. that side of the family is very, very Christian. Mm-hmm. And these sorts of things have a very particular narrative that goes along with um, fundamentalist Christianity. That it's just something you don't want to mess with. It's evil. It's wrong. Don't talk about it. If you're, yeah. Don't let anybody know it's going on. So um, when I engage with other members of the family, especially around collective experiences, 
that I found out that we had that were not like for a very long time, there were certain things that I was like, that was such an odd recurring dream that I had. And then once I started asking questions, it became very clear that, oh, no, that that wasn't a dream. Something happened. Something mm-hmm, happened. Mm-hmm. But it is hard to get a straight answer out of the family because initially they'll blank out. Yeah. But if you continue the questioning, they'll be like, well, there was this one time when. Mm-hmm. So I think it has to do with how traumatic an experience is in general, just on its own. B, it, it is usually coinciding with a family that has experienced some kind of trauma. Mm-hmm. It just, it just, it's strongly correlated. I'd be willing to bet 95 to 98% of experiencers have um, CPTSD or PT, PTSD, not only from experiences, but from existing dysfunctional family systems yes. and existing family trauma. It just, it's, that's how the script goes, unfortunately. Right. So right. I think it's a combination of those things, a dysfunctional family system, and also having very, very, whether they're benevolent, neutral or not, frightening experiences. It's mm-hmm. frightening to think about them in, mm-hmm. in a real way like that, because it very much changes your perspective, at least on mental health and, and maybe perhaps your entire worldview, your, your view of reality. So I can see why people would want to ignore it. Cause I did for a very long time. I spent most of my initial like childhood and everything else. My internal monologue was just, you are crazy. Mm-hmm. You're crazy. Mm-hmm. Don't talk about this. You are crazy. You just need to shut up. And, and when stories would pop up in the family, when someone would start to ask a question, an adult, the entire family would just jump on them, like just like hyenas, getting them to stop talking. You are crazy. Be quiet. It never happened. Right. So, so that's unfortunately um, what people are fighting against to even have a healthy conversation about what went on. Well, and you know, the thing is that, and as a result of it, what ends up happening is that so much of this conversation ends up getting marginalized into the, you know, tinfoil hat wearing TikTok videos and places where it's, it's relegated as, as weird. It's relegated as crazy. It's relegated as fringe or, you know, like, like unhinged in, in a way that allows people to continue to invalidate and deny. I have a, I've thought about this, that when I was in seminary, um, you know, I was in the oldest Protestant seminary in the country, and there was a lot of like following the rules and sticking with the, you know, the, the sort of prescribed dogma and the perspective. But there were some like radical feminists who were starting to bring in like the divine feminine and the idea of it. And interestingly, the one sort of token a uh, tenured professor who was a who was doing radical the, you know like feminist theology was extremely incendiary you know controversial very outspoken but very like in your face and the thing was and she was kind of a eccentric so as a result all of the people who did not necessarily uh, believe this stuff could easily write off anything she was saying as just wacky. 
And of course, the people who were converts were, you know, like eating it up with a spoon and grateful for what she had to offer. But there was no bridging into or opening the minds of people who didn't necessarily agree with the philosophy because she was it was delivered in such a way that was just kind of so fringy. And it just strikes me that in some ways there's something similar going on here where it's like the dialogue is kind of getting relegated to the wacky, unhinged, mentally ill, you know, edges of it and sort of saying people don't talk about this. I think so. And I think there are a couple of reasons, two big reasons, I think, for that. And one is just sort of the nature of media. That if you're going to sell something, if you're going to get somebody to watch something, it's always going to be the most sensational thing. I mean, I hear all the time about doing people doing casting for reality TV shows. No, we don't want the level-headed one. Get the one that is the most, that's going to make the most drama. And while that makes for sellable TV it does not make for a nourishing or inclusive or investigative, curious conversation. It doesn't expand anybody's mind. And unfortunately, we replicate that. I mean, that's mainstream media. But it's also what tends to be the most clicked on or the most watched within social media as well. So I think that's one big part of it. People, just to quote it from the 90s, we want to believe like people, people want, like people want that. And I, I think at the core of it, it's actually a very innocent, sweet thing. We want our world to be bigger than it is. Mm-hmm. We want there to be more than us. We want to be connected to it. We want to meet it. We want to engage with it. And it's sad to me that unfortunately, um, that gets hijacked. It gets hijacked by a lot of very harmful narratives because none of the, um, None of the conspiracy theories. I mean, some of them are just sort of maybe a little bit fun and amusing. But when you really get into it, these things are usually built. uh, I'm just going to go ahead with it. At the core of them, most of them are (laughs) anti-Semitic. They're Mm -hmm. anti-Semitic, often white supremacist as well. And, you know, that has its own history, which is why I, I always I just don't get into those narratives Mm-hmm. whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and my second big reason why I think that is the way it is, is because, because experiencers tend to get wrapped up in those narratives because there is a kernel of not truth as in what the narrative is, but the forms, the forms that they're seeing. When an experiencer has an experience in isolation, they are to themselves, literally, on a UFO that is literally an alien standing there. It's tactile. It's like it feels very real, mm-hmm. very, very real, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And they are literally seeing forms that we have names for now that mm-hmm. have developed grays, um, mantids, all of that. I've even like whenever people start talking about, um, and I'm sorry to, to bring it up if it offends anyone. When people start talking about things like Nordics and reptilians, Mm -hmm. there is actually validity to that. Like Mm -hmm. I had experiences with those forms before even knowing what any of that was, because that's how I Google searched it to begin with. I was like, what, what is this? And then all of those narratives came up. So I think the absence of conversation 
questions like these, more conversations like these, all it leaves people with is what's already been talked about. Like that's the first thing when people are scared, when people don't know, they're looking for answers. They want the answer right now. They want something to cling to that makes them feel included, that makes them feel like someone knows what's going on and that there is, you know, some sense about this. Mm -hmm. And those stories, those narratives give people that right away. And so people tend to get sucked into them and they can get sucked into them for a very long time. And it's not always for the best. Right, right. Well, and, you know, as you were speaking about reality TV, I was actually thinking about, you know, the damage that is done so frequently to people who were on reality TV and how, you know, I mean, one of the things that I believe often would happen with the, you know, reality TV shows is that they get alcohol, like they're plied with alcohol, that they are put in essentially situations that make them very emotionally vulnerable And then they are just kind of raked over the coals and, you know, sort of like manipulated. There's actually, there's a, uh, there's a sit, there was like a sitcom series a couple of years ago called Unreal that was sort of like about people forming or performing reality TV and just like the ways that they manipulate the members of it. But in, in some ways it's kind of like that to me strikes me as kind of an analogy to what you're talking about with the harm that can be done with this over sensational, you know, overly sensationalizing these things and, and kind of like turning stuff into clickbait because the sense uh, it is, as you said, it's not nourishing. It is not an, and people can really lose themselves as they go down that road. Yes. And when I had first, after going through all of my just regular for regular life stuff therapy, and then started getting involved in these other things, um, being involved in the more expansive ufology and experiencer community for a very brief period, probably like a little over a year, observing what goes on there and how there are some, they're very nice people. Like I've met lovely people, but things that tend to happen over Twitter, it's the exact same. I remember one of the the first like larger things, I don't think it ever came to fruition, but they were trying to cast a reality show. It was going to be kind of like Love Island, except for experiencers. And this, the second I saw that, I was like, that, please don't sign up. Don't sign up for this. I don't care what they're telling you this they're they're trying to make this a freak show because mm-hmm. experiencers unfortunately especially experiencers who have not been through like a, a healing modality like mine of preference is trauma-informed therapy who haven't been through that process uh, it affect it, it most definitely affects your relationships it most definitely affects your reactivity how you're behaving and i can only imagine throwing alcohol and, you know, lying to people, like saying this person said this about you and just the whole thing just being so nasty, Mm -hmm. so nasty and exploitative. And that's one thing I can definitely say that if there are any in the closet experiencers listening to this, I don't care what anyone is telling you within the media. Be so careful about that. Be so careful. Like, really, I I would not involve, like, I would really have to know 
um, the intentionality and it wouldn't be a reality show like a documentary or a podcast. Be so careful. Be so careful. Yeah. I, when I was a tattooer, there was a point where I was very briefly approached by, you know, back when the tattoo shows were really, really popular. I got approached by, by, you know, some scout and I just looked at the one email and I was like, no freaking way am I doing this? Because I knew that they would cast me as the loopy, weird, wacky, crazy girl or crazy woman. And that my role, like I would be a trope, that I would be a caricature of myself, but that also I knew that like I would have no control over the narrative and that I would be throwing myself into a deep end that was not looking out for my best interest. So I I really love how you are basically like, be mindful of where you share your information, which really leads me to say, I am beyond honored and incredibly, incredibly grateful that you are here and that you are having this conversation with me. Oh, of course. Well, I just knew, like, I knew you from before from our own group. Yeah. And um, I, because that was actually the first place that I started talking about. I remember when you started talking about it and you were teasing it out. I remember that. Well, because I was scared. I was just like, oh, I'm so scared to talk about this. I'm so scared. And then finally it was like, okay. And I remember like there was nothing within the context of that group. There was really nothing to be scared about. Um, but I do remember there was one person and um, because most of it was just like, you know, questions. They're like, oh, you know, I really care that you're going through this. You know, I support you. You know, if you need, you know, this or that, I'm here for you. And you would question me, you're like, you know, um, sometimes it's this. Have you considered that? And I was like, yep. And, you know, I've, I've been through, I've been, been down that road, though I'm not totally close to it yet. But one person was like, what do they want? Mm. And that that question struck me because it brought back the there are some people out there who, when they hear you have these experiencers, believe that you know what's going on, believe that you have answers and that like you can tell them what it is about this world and it shook me a little bit because I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, it, it, it's a mystery to me, but I can see how maybe someone else in that position would hear that from someone. Because to me, that's someone saying, like, reassure me or tell me. It, it's putting you in a certain position of authority mm-hmm. over something that no one is an authority on. Right. And so it just, in that moment, it reminded me like, hey, be careful how you're talking about this, who you're talking about it with, and what is your intention with this? Because while you're just looking to explore this and find support and community, this is maybe something that you're going to have to contend with. And this is not your responsibility. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Well, and I think, you know, you, you raise something that sometimes we say things and what our intention in saying it is not even necessarily the way that it comes across. And I'm I'm struck again and again and again by how important it is to be mindful of our delivery, but also, 
to be mindful of having open doors and conversations where we can say, if I say something and it doesn't work for you, change the words to work for you. If I say something and it doesn't land, ask me a clarifying question like that. But also, I really love to pre-frame as much as I remember to and can any conversation with somebody of just sort of saying, like, my desire is to understand you more if I say something and my intention is not to say something that is, you know, is is making assumptions or is bringing offense. And but I don't think as a culture, we're well taught how to communicate. So, I mean, that's a whole other kettle of fish. I think so. Um, but it, it, it just that brief exchange, because something that does tend to go on within the wider experiencer community every few years we get a superstar experiencer oh, and yeah. the experiencer topic kind of flares up again. Mm-hmm. And we had one, if you were in the community again, like a couple of years ago, and I like, I was there like for the initial, like when it happened and I was just like, Oh, this isn't good. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, it's probably never a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when this type of stuff pops up, because my own attitude towards my experiences at this point is the experience is real, but it's not necessarily literal. We actually don't know what that is. And I have lots of theories and my own personal beliefs do include like, of course, like for me, of course, there are multiple spiritual realms. There are beings um, that are subtle, that are spiritual perhaps interdimensional, however you want to describe it, but I don't know that that's what this is. Mm -hmm. And so I have lots of ideas, lots of theories about what it could be that I'm willing to explore. So when we have an experiencer coming out and um, they are taking their experiences very literally, Mm -hmm. and they tend to follow a very specific pattern with what you're shown and what you're told by these beings that you are on this UFO with, And it tends, and mine are the same way. I'm not usually told something, I'm shown things. I'm shown things on screens or, Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't even know that this was like, there's a term for this and I think it's called staging. And that it has a name blows my mind because I thought I was like, oh, I'm just completely, I'm I'm out of my mind. Like, But no, it has a name. It's so common, at least among the community. Sometimes you'll be taken into the screen and it becomes its own like fully dimensional experience in and of itself. And I believe that's called staging. Mm -hmm. So, um, and so these experiences within the UFO or however we're, we're going to think about that is you, I am shown apocalyptic scenarios, Mm -hmm. very, very horrible apocalyptic Mm -hmm. scenarios. It's distressing to be there. Mm -hmm. I'm usually shown, um, very, very like mass violent things, very Mm -hmm. frightening things. Um, and so it, it's not pleasant. The right. experience itself does not feel threatening or malevolent, but it it's terrible in that I don't want to see this and I don't understand why I'm being shown this. And there's never any explanation, really. Some people do like get very, very vague explanations. But when someone takes that literally and they have a little bit of a, a, a churchy background, They'll come out and say, like, the aliens are like, this is the judgment. Like, we were on the timeline 
um, the like they won't necessarily say the apocalypse, but usually um, the messages will be about we need to um, mass ascend as a culture, as a human species, because if we do not ascend, there is going to be like this mass culling and these beings are coming to do this culling. And while the language is different, I mean, at the core of it, that's really just, you know, the rapture, the final judgment. It's just that story with a different skin on it. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, when someone gets, someone's charismatic and for some reason, their presence really just takes off within the community, people tend to go with the fear because this person like it's a real experience. So they're not lying. Mm -mm. They're in no way lying or trying to scam anyone or be a charlatan. It's just that if you haven't taken care of certain things within your life, if you haven't taken care of your own trauma, if you don't have a grounded support system near you, if you don't have someone maybe to discuss these things with in a more tempered way, you're going to go with it. Mm -hmm. And that energy is very, very addictive for people. Yeah. It gets them excited. It gets them on the fear narrative. It gets them on, oh, well, this is really happening. And something's going to happen at this certain date. And it never does. It never does. It, it never, never does. It never does. I mean, you look at you look at the history of humanity and all of the beliefs in the end of the world that have been going on pretty much. I mean, I my personal theory is that my theory is that the ego of human beings cannot conceive of a world without itself. And as a result, every generation comes up with this idea that the world is going to end in their lifetime because it's sort of like you can't imagine that the world would continue without you. Like that's sort of one of the theories that I have, because I've also found it really fascinating when you start looking at the number of cults and extreme cultures that have predicted the end of the world and like god bless all of them who drank the kool-aid sometimes literally because of this idea that the end is nigh and you know and so i really i hear also the thing i also really hear about what you're saying is that it's like you have these charismatic people who have a dogma and a worldview and a perception that is sort of fits within that tends to be very fear mongering and oriented towards a certain like his for lack of a better word hysteria and but they use enough of the sort of felt experiences that people are having the common experiences that people are having that it's almost like it creates a veracity so that then people can be like, well, since this part of what this person is talking about is true, then it must mean that this part that this person is extrapolating must also be true. Yeah, I think. Let me see, where did I want to where do I want to go with this? I think the apocalyptic narrative in general right now, it's something that I think about because with all of the different um stories that we have centering around that that are going on culturally right now not at all to do with spirituality there's so much discussion or at least there was like america's headed for a civil war the, um, the economy's collapsing like there's never been a more broken time and just like society has completely lost its mind i'm like ah! <laughs> i don't know things are a little rough right now 
And I think for me, it's less about um, true apocalypse, the end of the world. And I think these things maybe start, they crop up whenever we are going through societal shifts. Yes. We are going through a societal shift. I, we are. I very deeply believe that yeah. the energy gets turbulent yes. and all of these narratives start popping up and they are definitely pointing at something that is true um, and pointing at very deep anxieties. And I think especially the deep desire for catharsis because um, the apocalypse or a civil war, when we finally meet each other or, you know, the aliens or whomever in violence, at least the anxiety goes away. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At least, at least I don't have to worry anymore. Like this is terrible, but at least it's not this. Yeah. At least it's finally over. And now where we're having the culminative experience and so I think that those narratives can be very seductive in that way. But also on the experiencer side, I think what makes people so like, even if you're not a charismatic personality, what can make you so charismatic, especially for someone um, who had their first experience later in life as a result of uh, like a near death experience or some sort of severe like physical trauma that happens to them. Mm -hmm. It can be a very, very violent illness, a violent accident. Anything like that can induce the same thing. When that happens, if it hasn't been happening to you since you were young, it tends to have a more radicalizing effect. Like you'll yes. see those types of experiencers, they tend to become more of like the prophet type or they'll convert to very, very fundamentalist Christianity or a different type of fundamentalist religion. Or what makes them so believable is, um, I'm just going to go at like, extrapolate for a moment is let's say that it is a being, let's say that they're having some sort of contact with a being. These beings, when they describe them, and in my own experience, the types of beings, if that's what it is, that I experience um, are very energetically power, like powerful. Being in the presence of one of these beings is very, it can be very disturbing. Not in that it's a bad thing, but just the alienness of it. Mm -hmm. Just the, the power of their particular presence or energy signature, it is very overwhelming to experience. And in my case, what it felt like, even as a young child, was that being in the presence of this being, it knew me. I could not hide from it. It knew everything about me. And it felt like being in this being's presence, it felt like a physical thing that it was touching me all over on the inside. Mm. And that's very invasive. It's yes. an invasive experience, whether or not it's neutral or not. And in my case, my experiences, while they are frightening, are very neutral. Um, some people, though, have experiences with beings where it's an equivalent power, but they're, they're experiencing theophany or extreme euphoria in the presence of these beings that apparently, in the experience, the being can turn off and on. So in the presence of the being, I am in bliss. When the being, when the being revokes its energy and presence, 
I have crashed down into the depths of whatever, and it is doing this, or I am having the experience of it doing this, while it is giving me or showing me a particular message, that to me, real or not, very questionable. That's very, very questionable because if someone was doing that to you in real life, if someone was giving you that type of an emotional narrative experience in real life, we would tell that person that is not healthy for you. You need to get out of that situation. Right, right, right. So so that's how these things tend to happen because they've been so inflamed by the experience and it is reality to them. They're speaking about it in a very convincing way because for them, it's real. You know, you remind me of sort of an analogy of this is somebody I was, you know, and I have multiple conversations about this with people over the years, but it sounds almost like when you hook up with somebody who you know is bad news, you know they're they're malevolent and they don't have the best, like the narcissist with the empath, but they don't have your best interest in heart, but the sex is the best you've ever had in your entire life. And it's like that intoxicating experience where it's like, it's it's like, you know, it's not healthy, but at the same time, that ecstatic bliss is such a hook that it really makes it like, okay, I'll put up with all this other stuff because this is this is just too yummy or too delicious to step away from. And I think that there's a it, it's a double edged sword as well, because I've not had experiences like that. I can't imagine what that's like. So there's that side of the experience. But then there is also, and this is a trap that experiencers can fall into very easily. And I think also to bring it back to highly sensitive people and empaths as well, the trap that we can all fall into, but I think maybe experiencers more because we're dealing with like being, like people think that these are, like literally they are beings, they are aliens, and they are more powerful than they know more than us. They are more powerful than us, more advanced. When you buy into that narrative and there is someone who you believe has intimate contact with that, if you are truly believing that yourself and you're believing you have some sort of message to provide humanity, there's also the dynamic of it is intoxicating because this contact, even though it is intrusive and it is causing me harm within my life, it makes me feel special. Yes, it makes and you I'm, feel special. And I'm getting this when I come to these other people to talk about this, they are treating me as elevated and special and they want the answers for me and I'm the only one who can provide them. And it just tends to feed on itself in a really, really toxic way. And um, it doesn't typically happen in that dramatic a fashion all the time. But I'm telling you, it's like every three to four years, it crops up again. And I feel like I'm like the lone voice going, hey, guys, no, don't like this isn't healthy. And really, um, by even feeding into this, because they'll be like, oh, I'm here for the popcorn. I just want to watch it all go down. And I'm like, even that, even that we really need to think about this person's mental health their own stability. It is in fact harmful to be participating in this at any level. It is hurting them mm -hmm. and it's, it's not right. Mm -hmm. Well, and this sort of leads me um, there. I'm having two thoughts. One of them is just about how the whole way that 
our own narrative and our own belief system and our own ideas can inform information. Like we're getting data, but then we're translating it through our filters, through our lenses and through our cultural perceptions and experiences. And, um, you know, it's fascinating to me when it's like I'm reading a piece of like channeled information or something and where I feel like part of the transmission is coming through pure and part of the transmission is coming through with, say, the fundamentalist Christian background that somebody is bringing in. And it's sort of like it, it can be very hard to discern what is actual truth or like just based on sort of the experience of what something really is just just the facts ma'am versus the human interpretations of these things like and I've definitely seen that where I'm kind of like there's nuggets of truth in what I'm reading here and now I'm hearing this person's voice bringing in their own sort of punitive like often Christian background that has this whole sort of like you lowly worm humans are going to get punished for being such bad sinners. Yeah. And I don't know, which is why I've taken just to, to, to provide an update about where I am with my own experiences. Yes. Um, I, I wanted them to stop. (laughs) I I really, I, I was at a time in my life and this is like a few years ago where I had eliminated a lot of terrestrial possibilities. And I would say that if you're someone who's dealing with this, if you want to investigate within this realm, I would say to you, if you are not ready to have very deeply uncomfortable conversations with your family to eliminate, because like I had to, I have to go there like, hey, is there maybe something that you've been keeping from me? was I actually assaulted very young? And my mind was, did you know this? And maybe perhaps I was too young and you were hoping that, you know, she's so young, she won't remember, Mm -hmm. but you know, but the, but the body remembers and the the brain interprets it in a specific way. So I had to go through, or I felt it was my responsibility to go through those conversations, to take those routes first. Um, Also to eliminate psychosis. That was a very frightening thing to do with um, therapists and psychiatrists going over all of that. But I was at a point where I just wanted it to stop. And if in fact, this was some form of schizophrenia, some form of chronic psychosis, you know what, I would rather accept that and deal with a treatment plan and have a fulfilling life than just continue on in all of this fear. Um, Because it's not really a way to live at all. So I, I live like I had to go through, I went through the therapist, went through the psychiatrist. No, you are not dealing with psychosis. Um, and actually with, with the therapist who had developed a very long-term relationship with me, one of whom actually specialized in schizophrenia. So who could say, no, this is not, that's not you. Um, and to hear these very, very professional people say, listen, you would be surprised how many regular people have experiences like these that they just don't talk about mm-hmm. because of because of the stigma because of this and it's just a phenomena but it it's not necessarily indicative of a larger mental health issue we we right. don't we don't know and it's more relevant to us your relationship with this and how it's affecting you than than a diagnosis so once i got to that point 
was when I started, I still had the conversations with my family about still like, what if this is a screen memory? Like, I don't want to close that door. And I still haven't closed that door. Because if I find anything out, or if I recall anything, I'll be the first one to say, hey, guys, you really need to really explore this before you go here. Um, so after I'd had all those conversations, and then after I found out that, in fact, it ran in the family, um, and that it, it had been going on for a very long time, um, what I did to stop my experiences completely was I stopped calling myself crazy. Mm. I accepted what was going on was at least real for me. I treated it as real. And why I say really eliminate all these other possibilities first is because if it is a mental health issue, if it is psychosis, that is the last thing that you want to do. Mm-hmm. You, you, don't, you don't want to reinforce psychosis and actual delusion. So before I took that step, before I treated it as something real, I did all of this first. And then I opened the lines of communication, whatever that means, because people call it telepathic communication. And um, I don't know if I want to use that word, but there is no better word for it. You can actually communicate at any time. So yeah, so I telepathically communicated with whatever this is as real. And I said, I don't consent to this anymore. I don't consent to this. I don't know that I will ever consent to it again. I don't understand it. You are no longer allowed to do this to me. And you have to mean that, like, so all of the therapy that I had had for regular issues built to that point. You have to be able to mean that with the people in your life, as well as whatever other beings that you were potentially dealing with in your life you have to be able to actually energetically draw that boundary and mean it. And the response that I got was, okay, but if it's an emergency, we're, we're going to have to. I have no idea what that means. But to ever since that point, ever since I said, no, no, I, you do not have my consent, not been another experience. Never been another experience. And so for me at this point, it's sort of like, well, who knows? Like if, if an emergency happens, I'll tell you <laughs> what constitutes an emergency. Um, I don't know. But I would say that my attitude towards that is that if this is something potentially beneficial for me and other people who are experiencing similar things, that is a good test. If something is respecting your agency, Mm-hmm. And your consent, that is potentially something that is okay if you so choose to deal with it in the future. Because I have no idea. I have no idea what that would potentially be good for. Like, why would I open that door again? So, but but if you chose to. Because yeah. if something's not respecting your boundaries, if something's telling you, no, I know, like, we need to do this and you don't, like... I don't know, escalate, find, find someone who can help you to close that out. Because whether it's a human being or some other sort of being, it's not something that you want in your life. Absolutely. Well, and you know, what I'm really hearing is, I mean, it all comes down to boundaries and consent. And that, and, you know, it's like, 
if somebody doesn't, I mean, my theory, whether it's a human being or it is an, um, an entity, you know, an extra dimensional entity, the bottom line is, if you say this is what my truth is and this is my boundary and somebody does not respect it, that is basically showing you that this is somebody you do not want in your life. Like, doesn't matter who's overriding the boundary, if you're setting a boundary and it's not being respected, it, it's like that is information that you don't want to be dealing with them. So I love that you're acknowledging their willingness to accept that. My, you know, I, I think about like the idea of sort of some of the old messages of like vampires can never enter until they're invited in, like they have to be welcomed in. And that's been sort of a, a, an understanding that I've had. And as we're talking, I'm thinking about in my late teens, early 20s, I was starting to go down the road. You know, I was experiencing the big, tall, you know, like the dark man standing at the foot of my bed and having those kinds of experiences. I had this being this spectacularly intense presence show up in my room. I was like 19 years old, but I very, like, I knew I didn't have the mental health for it. Like I knew that I didn't have the capacity to handle this. And I actually really kind of set a boundary at that age where I just kind of said, I can't handle this. And I've actually had a very clear boundary around around the, you know, the, the extraterrestrials pretty much since I was in my late teens, early twenties, where I've just been like, you guys, no, can't, you know, no, not, not for me. And they've been super respectful. And I've actually found even with, you know, just all of the kinds of things, like, I think people don't realize, like, you're allowed to set a boundary with ghosts. You're allowed to set a boundary with other kinds of entities that it's okay to say, I'm sleeping, I'm off duty, you need to leave me alone, like, leave a message someplace else or get in touch with my my assistant, you know, but like, not right now. And so personally, I have found that that kind of boundary setting, again, and again, and again, has been the best thing I can possibly do for things that are intrusive. I would also say that um, direct conversation, and I think because this had started so tangibly, like very, like, um, I wish I could explain what it was like as a, like, and I mean like two and three years old, sitting up and seeing like not a dream, seeing this in your room and having this presence with you. And it looked like, it, it looked like a little white, a white glowing, like like what you would describe as a glow with like the big black eyes. And it would just stand there and stare at me. And I was hor like, of course, <laughs> like as a child, you're horrified. And um, this little being was there mm -hmm. every and, and even during the night, it was visible to me, like not dreaming. I mean, like awake, awake, unless it, it really is all um, hypnopompic or hypnagogic hallucinations. Um, it was just there. But even during the day, um, it was still there. Like it was something that I would I experienced all the time because later on in life, my experiences became less uh, like as an adult, as an adult and adolescent, having a waking experience, something going on during the day where I am physically seeing something 
that became much more rare. Mm -hmm, It did happen. mm -hmm. But um, this particular presence, that little, like, for lack of a better word, alien was with me all the time. And it horrified me because I could feel it there. I could feel it. And the, the re I did not confront this being until I was in my early thirties. And it was because my therapist was really encouraging me to meditate. Every time I tried to meditate, I could see that like, when I close my eyes, I can just see things. (laughs) Yeah. So I would close my eyes. The being would be right in my face and I would be terrified. And I was just like, you know what? I'm not allowing my fear to get a hold of me like this. We're having the showdown. And I was very like, you know, Rambo's like, we're going to town. And so the next time that I meditated, I was just very aggressive. I was like, what do you want? Yes. <laughs> what, what do you, do you want? want? And <laughs> this little being was like, oh, you finally talked to me. I've been I- waiting for this moment for so long because now we can do all of these other things. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> are you kidding me? And so I heard that and I was just like, hey, you know, um, it really bothers me that you're so close to me all of this time, like 24 seven. It was like, oh, re- oh, okay. And it just like left. And I could not believe that since two years old, I was horrified by something that I thought was chasing me and stalking me and this malevolent force. And then in my thirties to confront it and have it go, Oh, I've been waiting for you to talk to me this whole time. And it just doesn't have a good idea of like boundaries as a human. Right. <laughs> like I was in hysterics and I was also like, I have been scared so long of something that I could have turned to and said, Hey, could you please just like back up six feet? Right, right. Could and it wouldn't change, have been an issue. It wouldn't have been an issue. And maybe even could you change your form so that I so that you're in a form that is more accessible for me or that feels safer for me? Or could you deliver the message in a way that lands for me better? I, I, yeah, I didn't even go like I yeah. until you even said that I was like, I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Because as a kid, what it feels like when you're that young, you really don't have any real sense of agency. And things are just happening to you. And so you just keep going with that child mindset. And whatever this experience is, whether it's a form of reality or not, it will treat you with that same mindset until you assert otherwise, until you change the nature of the relationship, at least in my experience, it just is sort of like, it treats you as though you are a child. Like we just have to do these things because, you know, you're not ready yet. And so we need, we kind of need to do this. And so then after I'm saying no, it's like, oh, okay, well, the dynamics of the relationship have now changed. Or Um, maybe it assumes that you understand that you're sovereign in this relationship and it's just expecting that you're going to set a boundary with it or tell it what's going on. And it just doesn't really necessarily understand that it needs to let you know that you have agency with this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like it just, it's, it's a very, very, it's a, it's been a very strange life experience. And I'm wondering where it goes from here. Like, is yeah. it now more just about solid education for other people? I, I mean, that's what, what I'm thinking, talking about it and the way I'm talking about it. And also just to bring it up, talking about it, because I know we've talked a lot about mental health, at least speculating about the nature of reality, personal beliefs, not necessarily being facts, experiences, not necessarily being literal. But um, 
as I get more into like a public discussion, making my own like YouTube videos about the subject, as I kept getting into it, I got deeper. I was like, oh, this is going to require so much research because we can't talk about mental health and the nature of reality without also talking about how other cultures and in fact, cultures that were here before us already had a framework that included things like this. And then when colonialism and genocide and all of this happened, we destroyed that. I'm saying we, as in, you know, our ancestors mm-hmm. that came over were connected to that. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was already an understanding of this. And then another framework just sort of violently invaded and said, no, you have this wrong. What the framework actually is, is first it was Christianity. Like these are demons, like what you're talking about. And then later on that became, oh no, anyone who's experiencing this has a very, very severe mental health problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think the dialogue around that is slowly changing because at least with the therapists and the professionals in the field that I've been talking to, they are very much aware that we're pathologizing things that should in fact not be pathologized. Yes. Yes. So these are very, very deep conversations about healthy frameworks, because honestly, what is healthier that someone who is having these types of experiences is having psychosis needs to be institutionalized and given medication? Or is it, oh, we already have like a a framework that involves this. And while they might not necessarily serve this sort of a role in the community, we found they've been very helpful here. And they're like, you're completely integrated. You have a role and you have respect as a human being. You have a, um, a wisdom to share. I think that that type of framework or or a union of frameworks like that, because obviously schizophrenia and and all of that does exist. Mm -hmm. So there is some Mm -hmm. discernment to be used there, but like some sort of fusion, some sort of bridge building between those two things. Like how can we make this less black and white? And how can we make these types of experiences, whether they're being shared by an experiencer, an empath, a medium, a psychic, how can we integrate that better into our contemporary culture? And that is the like million dollar question. Allison, I can't believe how fast the time has gone. We are coming to the top of the hour. If you had any advice for somebody who's listening to this and going, oh my God, she's telling my story. She's, you know, like somebody who's really relating like, what would you tell that, probably not necessarily that toddler, but what would you tell the young adult Allison who was struggling mightily with this? That you're not alone. There are other people going through the exact same thing. It's okay. I know it's scary, but it's not anything you have to be afraid of. That you have power in this situation. This is not something that is controlling your life. Um, and, and an adult version, I would probably say, if you know, if you know that, you know, and we tend to know deep down whether we've fully engaged within our past traumas or not, we tend to know it's there. I would seek some sort of like whatever healing modalities work for you, be consistent with it. And once you're in a place where you feel comfortable talking about all of it in total, you can talk 
about your trauma, maybe with way less reactivity. You don't mind questions about your own mental health and your own processes around mental health without becoming offended or reactive by it. Why mm-hmm. someone might have that question talking about this. Be very, very careful who you share with. Be very, very careful what sort of public appearances you make, because that's very much an industry that is (laughs) driven by attention. Mm -hmm. Um, And something that I just want to insert really quickly as a piece of advice, because it's something that really worries me going forward within the media. Um, the, The people who are in the mainstream, who are most delving into the experiencer specifically experience right now, does happen to be Fox News. I don't know if they've released their program yet. But they are courting people who have been in ufology long term to speak on their programs. And they at least had one or are having one that will be released program that is all about experiencers. My own political views and orientations are completely divergent from Fox News. I would be so careful. I would not even broach that at all. I would be so careful with that narrative. Um, that is catering to a very specific thing. And to put my own little, um, I don't know about conspiracy, but um, we tend to know that Fox News, that's pretty much like, I don't know if you're on the same page as me, that's Christian nationalism, unfortunately. It's Christian nationalism, it's propaganda. And whenever I have spoken to or heard a Christian fundamentalist speak on this, it, it, this is something that is demonic. So mm-hmm. I think that these types of programs are geared more towards the people and the experiencers that are currently involved with QAnon, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But I would be very careful because um, for experiencers and for people who are dealing with this, when you're reaching out to um, be public with it, there is such a hunger to be taken seriously. Such a hunger to be taken seriously, such a hunger to be acknowledged and validated, especially when so many people have been pathologized. And, you know, I would say in the same way that experiencers stepping away from pathologizing experiencers, you know, may we step away from pathologizing empaths, um, you know, Allison. This conversation has been so incredibly rich and so powerful. And the things that I'm really taking away from this is number one, don't try to do this on your own. Get help, get support with people you can trust and professionals who can really give you some support to give you a reality check. Because when you are trying to make sense of this, this is not something you can DIY. And, you know, that was one thing I took from what you've been saying. The other thing I'm really taking from what you were saying is, You do have agents, even if you felt like, I mean, as a toddler, you might not have felt like you had agency, but that as you know, that you do have agency, that you have the right to say, back off, buddy, like this is not working for me. This is not, does not feel comfortable. This does not feel safe. And that you have a choice about this. And those are sort of the two and also third curate your exposure to things, choose wisely and carefully who you share this information with. Choose wisely and carefully where you get this information, what kind of media content you are consuming, and don't just assume that all of the information about experiences, experiencers, try to say that three times fast, are the same. And so really looking for what is nourishing, what is safe, what is going to support me in my health, as opposed to what is going to send me down a 
wild and crazy rabbit hole. Right. And less answers and more what is working for you and your life. Yeah. Yes. Well, and you know, you were saying if you take something at face value, the only time you don't want to reinforce a delusion is if it is, you know, schizophrenia or mental health. I actually would say that in my experience, whether it is imagined or a hallucination or a real, you know, something we is that is, you know, not as dreamt in of in our philosophy, I actually do think that setting a boundary is kind of the mess. Like it's part of like whether it's within ourselves or outside of ourselves, if it's not working, we're allowed to set a boundary. And Mm. so that would be the one place where I would say, regardless of the origin of something, when it's not working, we get to say no. Yeah. And, and that I think that that's where it's like, let's just, instead of trying to determine whether it's real or not, what if we just start with the boundary? Like, yeah, well, no, because I tend that was something that I still get hung up on. I still get, well, what is it? Is it real? Is it this? And I think that that's something that I don't know. I don't know how beneficial that is right. like, at all. Right. Arguing about it, even with yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I really stopped sort of trying to figure out whether something is real or the veracity of it as much as I'm like, OK, so how do you want to feel about it? What do you want to do about it? What is going to work for you? Like, it's not as important what the source is as it is about how am I going to be able to disengage from it or engage with it differently? And how do I want to feel about it? Well, then I can definitely learn something from your example, because I still most definitely get hung up on proving something Mm -hmm. and that definitely that validity. But I think, you know, it's normal to have those vulnerabilities. Oh, normal as and, and especially like. I mean, I grew up in an atheist family. And so I grew up in, you know, kind of like there's a fundamentalism within atheism as well, because there's a certain kind of rigidity to that. And so I was constantly being encouraged to prove. And there's an, for, so it's been a long journey to come to the place where I'm kind of like, I don't care. It's like, <laughs> whether this is coming from inside my head or outside of me, it doesn't necessarily matter. What matters is how I engage, how I feel about it and what I do about it. How I engage with it. Yeah. Agreed. So Allison, how can people get in touch with you? I am on Instagram. (laughs) Let me explain this. I'm the new thought on Instagram and I'm Allison Rose Martinez on TikTok. I do talk about experiencer stuff and I'm, I'm going to be making longer YouTube videos about that. But the majority of my contact content on um, Instagram and TikTok is surrounding manifestation. Yes. Like that's that's my big passion. Yes. So um, if, if you are also interested in manifestation, which I also think I take to um, a nuanced place like involving mental health and everything you else. Well, if, and- you've been, uh, if you've been frustrated with any of those very like black and white conversations about like high vibe and low vibe, like maybe, maybe come over and hang out with me and we right. can talk. Yeah. I love your, I mean, Allison is really funny. Um, She is really, and she's not afraid to call shit out. And I, you know, like, I love how you are just poking holes in some of the ridiculous ideas that people have about law of attraction and everything. So you guys definitely check out her Instagram. It will be in the show notes. All of the ways that people can get in touch with you will be in the show notes. 
And um, and also just a new thought is spelled a little bit differently than <laughs> I meant to. Yes, it's T-H-E-N-E-W-T-H-0-T, which was my own. Like, I'm very like I try to bring a subversive humor to everything. So the new thought, meaning that hoe over there, but also the law of attraction and all of that is new thought. So mm -hmm. I am the new thought. <laughs> Awesome. Allison, thank you so much for joining me today and for having this incredible, real, authentic, and true conversation. I'm so thankful. And thank you for having me. I've loved talking about it. It's made me so much more comfortable. Oh, I'm so glad. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.